Hello and welcome to the Watership Down podcast, episode 7, in which we'll be discussing chapter 9 of the book, The Crow and the Beanfield. First of all, some introductions. Um, it's good to see downloads of the podcast growing. Um, I'm enjoying the process of making it anyway. It's lovely to see that I'm getting an audience and to see how the figures are going there. Um, I need to give another shout out to Will Fuller for his recommendation on the Watership Down fans group on Facebook. Lovely to see comments like that. It's good to know that what I'm doing is being appreciated. The thing is, whatever the audience is now, however small it is, it doesn't matter. Um, in future, this this podcast is going to be there for posterity. You know, it'd be downloadable for years and years into the future. So, you know, I'm not doing it necessarily for the numbers. I'd rather know that there is a small audience that's really appreciating it. It's good, it's good to see that. Thank you also, really big thank you to Rick Morris, who's been providing me with a lot of material for future podcasts. Um, also met him, I believe, via the Warship Down uh, f- uh, fans Facebook group as well. Um, like I say, he's provided me a lot of material, a lot of articles, contemporary articles on the book when it first came out. And also he's included me information on The Lost Paragraph. More on this when I cover chapter 11. There's a... Uh, cliffhanger for you. So anyway, despite saying I'll be sticking to one chapter per episode, there may well be times that I uh, that I actually pair chapters together. Um, this this episode was nearly one such example. I nearly paired this chapter, chapter nine, with um, the next one. Um, but thematically, it makes sense to pair the following chapter with the one after that, so I won't be doing that today. Besides, this chapter, chapter nine, has one particular feature that merits a bit more time, so it's going to get its own episode. This chapter has the largest single example of Lapine, of the Lapine language in the entire book. And I'll be discussing that specifically after I go through chapter 9, as it deserves a special section of its own. So then, on to chapter 9, The Crow and the Beanfield. Now, I'm not sure what the opening quote to this uh, this chapter really adds. It's uh, thematically appropriate, I suppose. It's uh, about... Beanflower's boon and blackbird's tune, although the chapter's about a crow. And it mentions May and June. Well, May is very obviously from the from the flowers and mentions on when this when this um book is opening, around around beginning of May, the hawthorn's out. Anyway, the rabbits have um come across the river and they're resting in the thorn of a hedgerow on the other side of the river. They must be exhausted, and that the, the lack of cover is not enough to prevent several from sleeping. They're out in the open basically. Hazel's very aware they're not safe in such open country, but, but where is there for them to go? They're away from burrows. What do they do? Well, he takes the lead here. He decides to scout out the country uphill. Um, he gets away from the smells of the hedgerows and the cow dung nearby, and he detects another smell that is dominating everything as he gets closer to it. And decides to check this out on his own so he can bring bring back any news himself. There's slight signs of insecurity here due to Bigwig's presence in the group. But then again, you know, we're maybe just getting an insight into the realities of leadership that you just have to be aware of others trying to dominate and make sure that you keep giving people reason for you to, to respect you as a leader. Now, either way, as he make his, makes his way up the slope through the cowls, he sees what he does not realise is a crow. It's a blackbird on its own. It's hopping along the ground, and he doesn't know this, but it's hunting a mole, hoping to get it through one of its tunnels, spike it on its on its beak. Hazel's unaware of the risk that might pose. He doesn't think of it as being a lil, but just being a, a, a not-hawk. Uh, all birds that aren't dangerous, in other words. And as he goes up the hill, the smell gets stronger. 
It's a field of broad beans. Now, he hasn't seen these before. He doesn't know what they are. Now, it's interesting. It talks about the smell of broad beans. I've grown broad beans for several years. In fact, I've got some growing on, on the balcony now. We mainly grow them at our allotment. But um, uh, I never thought of them particularly having a smell. So I went and smelled them earlier. And they, the flowers kind of have, have got a mildly pungent, spicy smell, I suppose. And mainly what they smell of is, oddly enough, broad beans. Um, I never really noticed it before, but for rabbits and other animals with their kind of sense of smell, it would be quite a, a potent smell, I suppose, particularly a whole field of them. I've never stood near a field of broad beans. So he realises rabbits can't eat them, but that such a large field of broad beans might provide cover and their height as well might provide some kind of shelter for them and cover where they can actually rest properly. So he decides to go back to the others. Getting back to them, only Big Wig and Silver are awake. This is probably the owls that are training. Silver says he just doesn't feel safe enough to sleep. Well, Hazel explains his plan. And um, Big Wig expresses a bit of cynicism, but only momentarily, seemingly. But they get the rabbits up and get them up the field to get into the bean field. The rabbits don't move as a group, but they straggle widely. It's... It, it, demonstrates that we're still dealing with rabbits they don't move as a group they will just like straggle and move in bits and pieces that uh, despite the fact these are talking rabbits they still behave like rabbits apart from the occasional floating each other across rivers now suddenly there's a screaming sound fiver and pipkin are at the rear of the group they have been attacked by the crow it's aiming as they at their eyes as crows apparently do it is spiking its beak at them and they're trying to hide themselves in the grass. Hazel rushes towards them just to distract the crow. Doesn't know what he's going to do. Followed by Bigwig, then Silver. And the crow actually actively stands up to Silver with its wings open. And Silver hesitates, doesn't know what to do. This is the first active content with hunting a lil in the book. I mean, there's, there's the Lendry, the badger earlier, but this is the act, first actual moment of danger from a predatory animal in the book. And Bigwig actually attacks the crow with sheer weight. He tells the others to get in behind it. He knows how they behave. His, his owls are experiences coming out here. But the crow's already had enough and it leaves. And there's lovely detail of the sound of tearing grass as a cow feeds once the commotion is over. One of those lovely details in the book. We've all heard that sound if we've walked in the countryside near cows grazing. Bigwig goes up to Pipkin. And as he does so, he utters the words of a poem that I'll discuss in the next section. A ribald Alzola lampoon, as it's called. Seems more concerned with being proud about what he's done than actually what's gone wrong with Pipkin, to be honest. Hazel notices Pipkin is clearly wounded in the front paw. Something needs to be done about this. And they enter the bean field together. It's very obviously going to be a safe place. There's lots of cover overhead, although it's quite noisy. It's a kind of the susurration of the bean of the beans is is a singular sound. It doesn't alarm them at all, unlike in the, in the woods. And all the rabbits gather in a hollow in the bean field, safe at last. Hazel offers to look at Pipkin's paw and sees a thorn sticking out of his foot. This has to be removed. This is could be serious for him. Now Pipkin's limping by now. And Hazel manages to by licking manages to get the thorn out. Hawkbit wakes up Speedwell because the size of the thorn is so big that uh, Speedwell thinks Acorn should be woken up just uh, just to see it. And Speedwell jokes 
that they could have used the thorn to make another notice board to scare Fiverr with, or a weapon against the Lendry, the badger they met earlier. Here's a thought, a little bit of a slip-up maybe here. How does Speed 1 know what a notice board is? When Fiverr came across it, they didn't call it a notice board, as far as I'm aware. Would the would rabbits need a word for a notice board? Maybe they would, but they didn't mention it earlier. Anyway, Hazel tells Pipkin to lick the wound better and sleep. And the chapter ends calmly. Hoi, hoi, u emblia chrea, masayan ule chraka vere. Now you know you're a watership down geek when you can not only recite that from memory, but can also write it down from memory, which I can. Yes, I'm showing off. Right, this is going to get a special section of its own. This poem is the largest example of lapine in the entire book, as far as I'm aware. The largest single extract of lapine we get in the whole book. And it's fascinating. Um, so this poem would give us a vital clues as to the nature of the language lapine, if it actually existed. So it'd be interesting to look for any ways that its actual structure is inconsistent with giving us those clues, but I'll leave that to linguists. I am speaking as a monolingual English speaker. Of course, I'm, I live in England. I... English is my first language, of course. Living in England, as far as we're concerned, everyone has to speak our language. Not really, I don't mean that. But, you know, we're a very monolingual culture, basically. There are many cultures around the world. If people's, if people's first language is a language that is not spoken by many other people, then you have far more pressure to learn another language. We don't. Um, and consequently, I'm not fluent in any other language but English. So... After this episode, any input from linguists or bilingual listeners or multilingual listeners will be absolutely fascinating and, and very welcome because I'm analysing this as someone who has never properly learnt another language. I've tried. Um, German was my best, I think. But um, basically, yeah, um, for whatever reason, I come from a culture where it just isn't valued and I'm an example of the results of that. So, word order in Lapine appears to coincide mostly with English, which seems a little bit too convenient. I mean, you look at languages like Japanese, for example, I'm aware that word order can be completely different. The whole way words are ordered can be totally different from what we'd expect in a Western language. However, this poem does contain an intriguing example of changed word order. The last two words of the poem are a noun followed by a verb. The word chraka, which is the noun, followed by the verb ver. Well, in English, of course, we'd say ver chraka. We'd have the, ver the verb to pass, then the noun chraka, droppings, pass droppings, not droppings, pass. So there is a slightly reversed example there, um, like you get in some other European languages. So let's go through the vocab. vocab. Now, in, in, in the notes for this podcast, the vocab appears at the end as an incidental note. Here, it's an integral part of the, of the episode. So I'm going to go through the words one by one. So first of all, we've got hoi. Obviously, that's a kind of hey, hey, shouting out word, hoi. Um, yep, fair enough. And then we have the word oo. Hoi, hoi, oo, the. It seems to be just the word for the, oo. Oo, rare. That's mentioned elsewhere in the book. The, 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 the thousand. Um, 
And then we have this fascinating word, collection, which I think is possibly a combination of three words. Musaeon. Musaeon. M apostrophe S-A-I-O-N. Now, M seems to be possibly a contracted and possibly inflected. That is to say, the way you actually pronounce the word is, is changed by context. In, a contracted, inflected version of we. Does this hint at this language having quite inflected verbs? English doesn't have really greatly inflected verbs. The learning verbs in English, from what, I, from what I gather, is reasonably boring. They're a lot simpler than a lot of languages. English being a language with relatively little grammar. Then you have the word scion, which possibly seems to meet, mean meet them. Again, possibly contracted and inflected, maybe. Is there a word for meet or them, which starts S-A-I? And then it, the end of it's been taken off. Is there a word for meet or them? Probably them. That ends in O-N. And they've been contracted with meet them. M say on. We meet them. See what I mean about English word order? Or is it indeed we them meet? It might be that. It might be the other way around. And then you have ule. Now this is the most interesting word in the poem. Ule. Now, obviously, speaking English, we don't accent letters at all. And this word has an accent. It has, um, it has a, an accent above the E, which goes from bottom left to top right. And I had to look that up, what this, what this accent means, because, of course, we simply don't have accents over letters in English. Um, and this does definitely mean it's pronounced oule. If it was an accent from top left to bottom right, it would be oule. Um, so oule is the word. Now, what does this mean? Well, as far as I can see, it means either even, as in even when we, or it might mean stop, simply stop. It might be a slang word, it might be a common a shortening of a phrase. But the word has the place in the sentence of even when we stop. Even when we stop. It's possibly a single word for a concept that would only need a word for rabbits or other prey animals given the importance of feeding the open and of flight to such animals. So a word meaning even when we stop or we stop, something like that. It's an interesting loaded word, the most loaded word in, in the phrase, and most ambiguous as to its meaning. And then we come across the word I thought, I had to check back, I thought I already covered this in the, in the, uh, in the vocab for a previous ep episode, but I haven't. We then get to our favourite, one of my, well, my favourite, laypine word, chraka which means droppings, as in rabbit excrement. Chraka. It's used as a swear word in the book. A wonderful word. And then, as already mentioned, it's followed by the verb ver. Now, what is ver? It's used to mean pass, as in passing droppings. Well, in English, we have the verb to pass, as in to go past something, to pass something in your car, but you can also pass, um, pass droppings pass something out out of yourself um, so we have that ambiguous verb it means motion motion through I suppose that's what we call um, we call excrement motion sometimes um, there's going to be a lot of references to poo in this part of the episode I do apologize I'm trying to keep my non-explicit tag here as you'll as you'll hear so it's possibly a, a verb meaning to defecate which would be interesting because that would distinguish the noun for excrement, chraka, from the verb meaning to pass excrement. Now that's different in English. We have a few words 
and I'll use the words I can use with, by keeping my um, non-explicit tag, we have words such as poo. Now, in English, poo is both what you poo and the act of pooing it. I'm sorry if I'm making you laugh at the moment, but, you know, we use the same word for the verb and the noun. There are other words we use that for there, but I, I, in the same way, but I won't mention them here. Now, what I want to know from you linguists is, is this unique to English? Is English unique in being a language where the noun, the name of poo, is the same as the act of pooing it? Anyway, that's quite enough of poo. It's a brilliant poem. It shows the spirit of the owlsler. It says the stinking thousand. It shows um, contempt for the the Elil. And uh, it shows that the rabbits meet with them and fight them, even in the most vulnerable moments when they're stopping to pass their droppings. Wonderful little snippet of Lapine, and I wish there were more, to be honest, because analysing this one has been fascinating. And I really value your comments on this, especially if you, like I said, you speak languages other than English. So, in the next episode, we cover chapters 10 and 11, The Road and the Common and Hard Going, in which the rabbits face more new dangers, and there is dissent about whether they should even have left their old warren at all. Mm -hmm.